Hello, wisdom keepers and light bringers of the world. Welcome to the Rise Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Jordan, and I'm honored to facilitate a place for us to gather and hear the stories and wisdom from our relations. Thank you for being here. This podcast is listener supported, and we ask that if you find value in these episodes, that you make a donation on our website, therisecollective.org, in service of our continued learning and community building. Before we begin, let's welcome the guardians and gatekeepers. We humbly ask for your protection and assistance today. May our listeners hear what they need to hear in service of their highest good. And so it is. Sweet Medicine is bridging ancient traditions with a modern society. She is a wisdom keeper and a teacher with 45 years of traditional ceremonial experience and native teachings. She assists those who are longing for a deeper connection to the sacred by nurturing and guiding them through rites of passage. I met Sweet Medicine a few years ago. I don't know how many, four maybe or five. It feels like a long time ago to me because I feel like I've known you for a long time, sweetie. Um, And Sweet Medicine guided me through the process of going on the hill, and she's been one of my biggest confidants and um, my teacher, and I feel really grateful to call you my friend, Sweet Medicine. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very excited about this and proud of you that you're doing this. (laughs) Thank you. So can you tell us about the journey that you've had to becoming um a wisdom keeper and what it was like early on in your journey to become um Uh this wise woman that you've become okay well i think no one really gets up in the morning gets in the line and says when i grow up i'm going to be and i definitely wasn't one of those i was pretty insecure and shy and i stuttered and i couldn't spell words right and you know, there were there were those um I'll call them hurdles to get over. But in the other level of my consciousness and my deep inner, I was always asking questions and being visited by spirit. I didn't know that this was uncommon and I felt shy about it so I kept it kinda private. But there were elders always which seemed to be who I hung out with instead of my own peer age. Mm. didn't have friends until I actually had children and needed to interact with some other mothers, but mostly elders who took me under their wing and would ask me questions that were provocative for me to think about. And also I would get teachings while I slept. And so I put that together in the beginning just as a person who had friends, maybe there's a situation, and I would put my hand up and say, well, what about this, coming from that place? So that was early on. And then uh, I moved from Hawaii where I was being raised, and I had had a lot of Hawaiian elders who gave me the idea and the knowledge that wisdom comes from cultural Uh, understanding that is not of today's world. And so I adapted that when I got back to the 
the solid um, 48 states here and um, began that process of seeking out my own my own relatives, my own elders, finding out that we did have Indian blood and it made sense to me why I was uh, my propensity was to go towards Native people, find out all I could from them, be curious. So I began my study that way and then um, decided that I would commit to this as part of my goal because I wanted to do medicine, uh, the kind that would be alternative, herbal, mm-hmm. uh, midwifery, homeopathy, those kind of things. So I tandemly found that internally there was another kind of school, university, that had been going on since I was about maybe five, that I remember back further, but five really clearly, and being initiated on these other levels to be a a holder, a basket of this knowledge. So to be a wisdom keeper for me requires, I think, a lot of experience, um, not just reading in books or or hearsay from someone else, but personal experience and also elders who took me under their wings, um, people that we would call grandparents, um, aunties, uncles, who just said, come over here, let me show you something. And that ended up being what happened to me. Um, I studied with she who speaks uh, for the earth for like 10 years, I studied with wind that goes before the dawn for seven. I had other aunties and uncles and adopted Lakota fathers who, who out of everybody, chose me and, and passed their knowledge, their ceremonies, um, sanctioned me, gave me through ceremony the permissions to do, share, and um, further beyond them, continue it on, um, to take what I had learned back to the people. So wisdom keeper to me is dawned on me when it's like, oh, my God, I'm 60. What do I have to offer the world? Re, revising, re-looking, um, remembering myself as to I'm in a new phase. And I realized a lineage, leaving behind a legacy of a lineage, was what other elders did for me. And so that put me through the next level of understanding I was a wisdom keeper and that that wisdom would go with me if I didn't share it. So my propensity to go forward and to do rites of passage to keep these things going, which I've been doing here in Oregon and in the South American countries for years now. I think I figured yesterday it was something like 38 years I've been traveling to teach what I know, basically sharing what others shared with me. And so that is what we call a wisdom keeper today. That's beautiful. I imagine that when you were um, working with your mentors and your teachers, um, I just have this imagining that you had a really strong commitment to those ways. And I'm curious about what that was like, like how did you step into that commitment and what did it look like on a daily basis or okay. as like a, small, a weekly basis? As a young girl, I actually had people ask me to make commitments. I don't think, you know, 
as a child, your parents ask you to do good morals and to be tell the truth and to share and not to lie. Those may may have felt like commitments, but literally, I remember um, like this wonderful like Godfather, Italian Godfather, who I sat in his wood bin. I think I was in third grade, and I would glue together wooden blocks because. I wanted to make something, and it, I was in his his uh, carpentry shop where he was a cabinet maker, and he said, I will make you a desk if you commit to being a teacher. And I remember that moment, it was as if I wasn't this little girl. I felt in that moment I was like his age, or maybe I didn't think about it, an adult, I'll put it that way, and that I needed to make a a firm agreement with him. So I remember that was my first major commitment I made. Yes, when I grow up, if you make me a desk, I will be a teacher. So I I think that that was the beginning of it. And then there were many other times when we study with people, they're there is a commitment. Maybe it's it's not so clear unless it's verbalized, but I have been asked to follow. Uh, if, if I share this with you, my hopes are that you won't change it and that you will keep it as clear and as pristine as the lineage it came from as best as you can because we're not back 600 years to know what that was then. It's only as good as the the person who shares it with you, energy and clarity, can point the way. So for me, I listened. I'm very good at listening, the better at visual. So if I got to do it or I got to see it done in front of me, then I learned how it was done. And then I was eventually said, come over here. You help me with this. I want you to do this part, and I'm going to do that part. And slowly it's like making cookies with your mom. You know, you pour in the milk and scramble the egg, and you mix it all around and throw it in um, the oven, and it comes out, and you've got cookies. So this is the process of committing to keeping things, not to muddle it with this, that, and the other thing, but to keep it as pristine as you can. So people would call that a traditional way of being, and for me, commitment to a walk, whether it be that you're a, a yoga person or you're a Buddhist or you're a Muslim or, you know, you you follow some um, other direction, we all have this commitment of alignment. And for me, mine was very strong with spirit. When I When I'm shown something that is clear, and something that really speaks to my core, mm-hmm. and I know it's a truth, like like a bell gonging. I listen, and I am alert, and I take in. And that's not always the case in the outer world. There's so much what I'll call uh, incoming uh, stimuli from so many directions. I feel like sometimes other people, I feel a little muddled from that, but at the mm-hmm. commitment level of learning a, I'll call it a recipe, a formula, a way of being, um, a way of looking at life. I do live that. I follow that. And 
I think it takes a certain kind of person. Not everyone can can apply this to their life. I, I So, like I said, I wasn't in the line, put my hand up, like everybody else, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a leader, I want to be a wisdom keeper. I thought teacher, when I committed to that, was like teacher, like at school. You know, that was my limitation. I didn't mm-hmm. know that teacher could be other things, other kinds of people. Um, teachers of wisdom, teachers of spirituality, teachers of consciousness. I, I didn't know that yet as a um, a viable in the world way of focusing as a child. We're, we're pretty innocent. So for me, I, I had difficulties because as I was being invited to be with elders, I didn't look the part. I have this right. uh, reddish, uh, my mixture is French and Irish, and I have some of this Indian blood, but it didn't show up in my skin or my eye color. So I was kind of like, they would call me, why is this blue eye here, when I would go and be in all-native all closed ceremonies where nobody mm. but native could come, or if they were married into to the family, they would be there, but... And they would spit at me, and I would get ridiculed. And this went on in my life a lot. Um, First of all, I thought there was something very wrong with me. But in Mm -hmm. time, as I matured and the elders shared with me what that really was about and how to get past it or how to get beyond it and realize what I know, they don't know and they want to know, but they don't know how to play nice. And so... I had to prove myself, and improving myself was just about what is my commitment. I'm here to do my commitment. I'm not here to volley back and forth their, you know, their discontent or their their rudeness or their jealousy or what, however it would come about. So the elders would focus me and go, just do what I've asked you to do. You know how to do this. Just go do it, and then. After a few years, I proved myself. Then they were like, oh, let's be best friends. You know, so that was my journey through uh, vision quests and sun dances and the very, I'll call it, patriarchic levels of the Lakota and many other tribes are very um, male-oriented until I came back to the teachings of my Choctaw traditions and really researching that. So... Um, for me, I see the the matriarch as being the leveler and the anchor that we're in right now. So for me, I, it's like committing to being a good mother on the earth, to a good daughter to the earth. That's mm-hmm. kind of part of the wisdom keeper's uh, perspective from where I'm at at this point in life. What um, can you tell us a little more about your Choctaw, your Choctaw? Um, background and what you learned about it, because I know that your ceremony, House of Flowers, which is focused on um, the divine feminine, is a Choctaw tradition. Can you talk a little bit about how the Choctaw, um, moving more in that direction, influenced your life? Well, I, you know, I studied with this grandmother, and it was very cosmic, and very, it, it touched those places where 
I had the visitations. I did the channeling of information that I had no idea how I knew it, and it was verified that that, that was truth. Um, and some different rites of passage, like the vision quest um, that we do today and, and I lead, but a little bit mm-hmm. twisted to it, a little bit different, almost the same, though. And at, when I came out of that and she crossed over the stars, then I felt a void. And then that's when the Choctaw grandfather teacher came along. And I remember this one story that I've told um, to you, and uh, I think it's appropriate here, because of your listeners, I'm sure they come from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. For me, I wanted to go, and I was very excited. I was in my ego, big time. I had made this buffalo stew. I had made this big couple of thermoses full, pumper pots of coffee and sugar and cream and uh, fry bread. I mean, I had the whole nine yards of a native person's best food. And I said, come on, let's go, come with me and um, I want to go and feed these people under the bridge, these Native people that don't get to eat that because they're homeless and maybe they're drunks, but they, you know, they deserve to have the taste of their own food as well. And my grandfather just sat there. and It was rare that he would swear, but when he did, it caught my attention. He goes, why the hell would you want to do that? I'm not going with you. I, I wouldn't do that. And I thought, oh, my gosh. I went into this silence. I got very scared. I was worried. I've done something to upset him. What did I do? I tried to review what I had said and, you know, my mm. okay, my ego. And then he just said, very after a long pause of silence, I mean, we're talking about a pregnant pause, like a good three minutes or four, he, mm. he just looked straight ahead, didn't look at me and said, how can you tell who the Calvary and the Indians are this lifetime? And when elders give me those kind of puzzles, those kind of questions, they level me. What I mean by that is that I get out of my head and I stop thinking with my forward thinking and I drop back in to my core of knowledge. And in there, I realized what he was saying. And I answered, I don't know. And he said, well, what would, if you were the one who was great mystery and you wanted everybody to learn because they're your children, how would you want them to learn that what they did is not okay? And so then I went, oh, yeah, okay. So you put them in the place of the very people that they they thought they had judgments against. And I realized what he was telling me. And it was the first time I really took on this viewpoint of putting myself in other people's shoes. What would that be like? What would it be like for a beggar who doesn't have legs on the side of the street with a little, you know, panhandling? What would it be like for these men that look full-blooded Indian that are, you know, sleeping on the sidewalk on a piece of cardboard out there? I'm going to go feed them. What if that 
them are are they're doing their work to experience what they shouldn't have done. So it was just a sort of a lesson of karma, I guess, if that's a quick way of saying it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my gosh, well, whatever I do here now, I need to be careful that I don't have to ju- that I don't judge others. And so this also came along with my understanding of why why were people judging me for being a woman and being a leader? And I internalized that as this isn't okay because where are these women leader in our world today? You know, the only mm-hmm. leader women were our school teachers and a few professors and a really rarely wanting to stay to be a, an alternative healer. There are very few women who are doing it. Mm-hmm. And so you could be a midwife, you could be an herbalist, you could be these other things, but not a leader. So for me, the process of that was to go, okay, there's some validation here that I don't know about and I need to start learning about my own tradition. I need to understand where does this fit into everything. There's some great wisdom here. So I went back and reviewed all my visits with my grandmother teacher and realized the things that she were telling me about are things that could happen now even though they happened a thousand years ago. And that's, with, along with my grandfather's teaching, I put together this understanding of like, okay, I'm married to a, I'm into a Lakota family, and I have adopted, been adopted by these Lakota fathers, and I'm acting like I'm Lakota. Well, no wonder, you know, in this body, I'm this this time. Mm-hmm. And they don't see me, but I keep finding myself with only elders and them going, come over here. Sit down here, learn this. Oh, come over here, sit with me. Okay, sing that song. Uh, oh, go do that sweat lodge. You know, And they gave me sanction to do things that I had earned the right to, but I hadn't thought I earned the right to because I wasn't thinking from that place. So out of that came a visit with my dear friend David Carson of the Medicine Cards, also mm-hmm. a Choctaw elder, and we talked about many times when are we go- He would ask me questions like, so when are you going to start doing the ceremonies of our people? When are we going to go back to Oklahoma and take a road trip? When are we going to go to Keokia, Ohio, and the Mississippi, go see where our people are from? When are you going to do that? You know, he would always want to go on a road trip with me. But mm-hmm. we would talk about the importance of bringing forward those things that needed to come forward, which was the initiation. So he he began the journey and um for me anyway to say this provocative question, when are you gonna do this? Like, wow, it's my responsibility. I didn't see I was in that line either. So a little bit ignorant, but knowing that I knew things and through his asking me questions, what I know, he learned that I understood about things he had learned from his mother and his auntie and the ceremonies that he was in as he grew up. So I said, well, we're not supposed to do this because there is this kibosh on we're not supposed to bring these sacred ways out until 2012 and that the closing off of all the fires, the closing of the Mayan calendar, and a lot of other things happened during that time. But I said, well, I will do that after. But I had already started in some ways for years 
because how can you not share wisdom and teachings, but I didn't do the ceremony. So then in 2012, I knew I couldn't go backwards. I had to go forwards, and I had to resurrect and bring forward these ceremonies. And so House of Flowers is actually a, a school, not a not just a building, uh, for all women's teachings from the time of our birth till the time that we cross to the stars. So as that unfolded and I got the confidence behind me and within my dreams and visitations and all those challenges that I looked at, looking backwards, remembering them, bringing them forward into the moment, I saw my whole life had been as a, a young adult, a mother, of a, a doctor, of you know, all the things that I was doing in the outer world was just preparing me for this. And that's when also I realized I am a wisdom keeper. People don't know this, and I saw the effects of it on women to discover themselves, mm. discover what we're really here to do. And, and because of that, I continue to do that to today, offering like House of Flowers initiations, uh, which are very important to us. And we need in our life today, there aren't, we self-initiate. People read a book and then they go out and think they can do this thing for themselves. Well, oh yeah, I'm doing a vision quest. I'm writing you to say, will you support me? I'm going to go for a walk about in the desert, taking my gallon of water and I'll contact you in four days when I get back and tell you I made it. You know, it's like, ooh, that that's so sad because a rite of passage is so that the community supports us, that we have a village that knows we went through there that, that are supporting us. So the same is true with House of Flowers. It's done with other sisters, some initiated ahead of time, years before, and then you the younger ones coming through the initiations until we are at the end of our life and those that we left this information in their keeping as the next wisdom keepers, then they perpetuate it and keep it going. So I see in a cellular world where we're all um, more with electronic friendships rather than literal contact, a lot happens where we are not in that tangible, personal experience initiation and how are the divine feminine going to be brought up without that it's just it's passing from one person to the other the information that we're doing maybe not sharing how but just the feeling that we have so initiation in the tribal sense was always vital because it's what built community trust in one another um, uh, forward thinking as a people, and today we're pretty much singular because of the way that we have sped everything up. So I see the lack of the rites of passage uh, in people's lives, and then I see what happens once they've done a rite of passage, whether it be a sweat lodge or a, a, a going all the way to vision class or people who are sun dancers or doing other initiations. I see them say, I had no idea. I had no idea until I actually did this how valuable it was. So for myself, you know, it was a journey of me discovering that and it adding to my life, like putting me, 
like if I'm spinning top, putting me in a stationary position in the center with my root down in the center of my core and receiving that information that, oh, I, I matter here and there's a reason why I'm here and there's a reason that I'm in a female body and there's a reason why I'm I'm here to do something in this era, being born now. So that's all part of House of Flowers. And it's also part of this structural, if we will say, indigenous way that people are attracted to come and walk the red road or this sacred path of the heart. Um, and for me, it there there seems to be no other way. Not that I haven't looked. I started studying comparative religions at 15 and wondering about all the, why are there so many different walks? And and then finding where I really fit in, where I really, it everything would come like a siphon up into me once I realized where I needed to be walking. So that's what I try to help people to do. And um, I go around and do those initiations, which I get to come to Boulder and do there with you. Yeah, we're so excited. Sweet Medicine is coming on the, the weekend of September... 29th to Boulder, and we're going to host her for her house of flowers ceremony. And I'm so excited because I've feel like I've done a lot of ceremony with you, and um, I've been wanting to do house of flowers for years. And I've heard how profound it is. What are some of the can you talk a little bit about some of the like realizations or changes that people experience in their lives after the ceremony? Um, well, I can't speak for every person, but some of the mm-hmm. feedback or what I hope that they will look at and find, um, give me the feedback that they receive that, is one, what is our origin here? And if we're in the feminine body, what does that mean? And that doesn't exclude the Lodge of the Deer Men, which is the male counterpart to the House of Flowers. But mm-hmm. I'll speak here just the House of Flowers, that women women feel the power. We are giving them the power in in the verbal lip you know, service today, mm-hmm. saying the divine feminine time and all of that. Well, this was this was predicted. This was told it, that it was coming. And mm-hmm. so the women of today have an opportunity, but they're not initiated because culturally the initiations are the news. The initiations are self-initiations of like, oh, I think I'm old enough to do this now, so I'm going to I'm going to give it a go. You know, without any support or any any um assistance or any conversations uh, we self-initiate and sometimes those are not very good first tries so Mm -hmm. house of flowers what it does is it brings a a woman into the place of understanding why is it that i am in this form and what am i to be doing here by being alive and it's not like getting in those lines to say, oh, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be an attorney, I'm going to be a cook. You know, it's not a profession. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a reason. There's a difference. The reason I am here 
is to be. And then I share what that is. It's very important. And each woman starts to discover by being in the environment of the House of Flowers, hearing the teachings, understanding how important it is to have the female body, and especially at this time, now for the next 2,000 years, to be awakening this balance again that has been out of balance for quite some time and uh, and bringing some nurturing back through us. We are instruments. We're like a tool. We're like a... We're like a... It would be... A, a way to feed. We come here to feed the mother. And so I teach about that and why that's important, mm-hmm. why it is that we can create life and how important that is and paying attention to that, that cycle rather than kind of just putting it on hold and keep going the way we want to go, but to notice high ceremony happens every month for a woman. Why isn't mm-hmm. it that the world supports that? I don't understand but in a cultural sense, in the ancient cultural sense, it would have been. Mm-hmm. And what if our lives were like that, that we would honor ourselves? So I teach all about that, and then we go through a beautiful initiation. The initiation is simple, it appears. It's what I do while everybody's together that makes a shift. So many women walk away saying, I had no idea really who I was. I knew what I wanted to be and what I was professing to be, and now I understand it requires to have something awakened in me, mm-hmm. something touched in me, something that I physically do that announces to everybody else in that circle that I have arrived at a place with you, that you've witnessed me, that we as the circle of women have come to the understanding of we are more than this. We are eternal beings, and we have a job to do or a purpose to do or a service to offer that is not in a CV or a job, um, you know, filling out a job application. You're not going to find the request for that in the one end. But it is wanted and needed, and it has been a metronome for all these many centuries for us to get back to this place of nurturing ourselves, caring for ourselves, knowing who we are, and truly understanding that. So that's why I also love to do the soul purpose readings, because that immediately tells the person, are you doing what you came here to do or not? And many of Many people say, oh, my God, if I had known this, I wouldn't have gone that direction. I go, nothing's lost, always more gain. Now what are you going to do when you know why you're here? You know, it's like the reluctant king. It's like finding out, oh, you were a, you're supposed to be a queen. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that, my life didn't go that direction. Well, neither did I know. I was a wisdom keeper. I had to go through this place of understanding, be initiated, being told, taught, and sanctioned to be able to do the ceremonies that I do do. Today, I don't see that happening. I see people who go and watch somebody else do it, and then all of a sudden they're doing it over here without sanction, 
without the mm-hmm. full understanding of what could go wrong, what would you do? They only see the surface of like copying, and copying is like what children do, and so right. we have a world full of lots of children. Yeah, yeah, I I like that distinction, and um, I'm I'm not sure if this is I don't think this is something we can go into right now, but I think it would be an interesting conversation sometime in the future to talk about, like, how do we make that distinction of what can be copied and what what can't be copied? Well, I can very quickly say, if you were sanctioned to do it, for instance, you definitely do not want uh, open-heart surgery with somebody who's just read a manual. Right. You want somebody who's practiced at this. When we're talking about our soul, our purpose here, you don't want someone else to put a label on you just because of your ego. You want to know what is it that I'm in alignment with when I do what I've come here to do. So the distinction is many people misappropriate by taking other Mm. people's um, what they see. So they look up to somebody. It's a good start. They look up and they say, wow, I want to be like that person. I want to do what they're doing. This talks to me. That's Mm -hmm. the first step. Then the next is the coveting. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do it because I want to. And then they start calling themselves wisdom keepers, or they call themselves shamans, or they without really being initiated. So it's like that, you know. If you're if you're gonna be a um, a really good chef, well, you got to have a lot of experience of blending foods and understanding about the fusion of of spices, and so that takes years of experience and usually other teachers that teach you along the way, and. Mm-hmm. In the sense of like brain surgery or heart surgery, um, you really want someone who knows what they're doing. So you, so we seek out people like that, you know. To we get referrals, we uh, we look for second opinions, those kind of things when we're talking about our physical health. Well, what about the health of our world and the health of our soul purpose? Why we're here? So I think. Being sanctioned is when the elders decide, or those that you're studying, say, okay, here, you finished this course in coaching for a year and a half. Now you can go out and be a beginning coach. But those who go on to study this beyond, some of them actually have backgrounds of sociology, of psychology. You know, they were something before they started that. And they're seeing how they add that to their life today. And they get a certificate. They go through an acknowledgement from their teacher that you have fulfilled this and now you can teach this. And I see this in the sense of clauses people put um, when you sign the contract. I will study with you. I will do this. And they say, and you can't copy any of my handouts. And all my photos are mine. You know, they make a distinction because of this misappropriation. Native people kind of get a little uh, upset about that. But, hey, how are they going to know if you're just doing it over in, you know, Timbuktu, suburbia? No one's going to know what you, if you know or you were sanctioned or not. So we have a lot of 
children leading children. That's my point. Rather than people right. are accomplished and have been given the blessing before many people so that the community knows that they are have been given that. And that happened to me. I had many uh, moments of sanctioning that I, some of them I was not thinking I was prepared for, but the elders felt I was. So I stepped up to it with what I knew, and I did the best that I could with remembering and bringing it forth, and then it just took over, and I, I, you know, I was praised for, you did a good job, and that's excellent. Next time you can try this a little bit, or, you know, so it's having guidance, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it seems like that's um, right now. It seems like a big. It, it has my attention that there are a lot of people out there calling themselves shamans and medicine women or medicine men, and um, I think it's really important to be discerning with who we choose as our teachers. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on, um, in general, what you said about um, being like a redhead with your blue eyes. Um, you've been in the seat of um, like being a white person um, on the outside, following the red road. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that cultural appropriation conversation? Well, it takes me back to the conversation with my, you know, my grandfather teacher in mm-hmm. how do we know who we, who people are by looking at their skin? We don't know. How do you know what's in a package? It's like, you know, this whole thing that's out there today about how do you brand yourself? How do you present yourself to the world? Well, that's only a label on a jar or a package. It's the content that we need to really relay what we know. And um, sometimes we look at certain people and we go, oh, they're authors, they, oh, they've been in a movie, oh, they're somebody, and they're really way up there. And then here is a very humble, quiet, indigenous person who's the real thing. And we would, right. just, we would just drive right by them and think they're nobody because they're not on their soapbox, they don't have a website or whatever their thing is, but they're the ones that we need to go sit at their feet and say, what do you know that I should know before I take another step past you? Because they're, they're amongst us. We just have to be able to decide who has the years of experience, who has who who are the people talking about, what are the differences that are being made? And, you know, we're all out there to try to figure out how to do our thing. And we're going from more of a world where everything's in the mall back to uh, the old village where each person did whatever their parent skill was and they got passed down. You know, like, for instance, the the guy who made the horseshoes, he taught his son how to make horseshoes. and. If you wanted to go beyond that, you had to go study as an apprentice with somebody else in the village. You know, if you wanted to learn to make bread or butter, or you know, these are things that people learn from people accomplished. And um, today, we kind of have people just going, "Oh, I'm going to be this 
and I'm good. I have a drum. I have a rattle. Oh, I, I'm going to go out and buy this pipe. Okay, now I'm going to do these ceremonies. And that is not okay in the sense of you haven't walked the path of understanding what you're doing yet. And you do need guidance. You do need someone to help polish kind of the rough edges as you're feeling wobbly in your training wheels. And so misappropriation is a really big thing. And it, it, what it does is it dishonors those great people for all that they went through um, in their accomplishments to get to where they are. And in the Native tradition, we would never name what we are. The people name you by your deeds. So I never called myself a shaman, never called myself a medicine person, never called myself a wisdom keeper. Those titles came from people outside of me who said, would you call yourself a shaman? And I go, no. Would you call yourself a wisdom keeper? Mm, no. These aren't things that we call ourselves. We are just who we are, doing what we, doing our medicine, doing our skill, the very thing that gets initiated and awakened in us when we are initiated as to why are we here? Why is this physical being that we call you know, sweet medicine, why is she here? What is she supposed to be doing? And when we find that out, then we are walking this beautiful path towards the discovery and taking our place to do what we need to be doing here instead of just kind of, you know, seize candies trying all the different flavors. Mm. I think it's dangerous uh, at one level, and then maybe it's part of the experience for people to see. You know, I've watched people who take off and they're going to start doing this one thing. And they have no sanction. And I see what happens in their lives over a period of time. It isn't always immediate. But I see what it takes to be honed and fired and challenged to to go to our center and stay there under all the storms. That's somebody I want to hang out with, somebody who's really done their work, somebody who has learned through their experiences and isn't, you know, isn't, isn't just waving a flag saying, look at me, I'm somebody. Right. But it's hard because we don't have this cultural uh, support and and we don't have the model of it. So anybody can... Yeah, that does make it challenging. Uh Uh-huh. Before we were talking about how you were one of the only women or the only woman um, in your community or who was working with elders. And I'm curious, what, um, how would you describe what feminine leadership is? Well, that's a good question. I think that is still sort of morphing itself into what that really is. I I feel for myself what I noticed about uh, the feminine leadership role was that you had to be tough. You had to be strong. You had to kind of like, you know, click your heels together and 
and kind of carry a you know a stick because that's what I noticed of a lot of the native women when I first started like sun dancing and stuff you had to go before this council of grandmas and it was tough they were not nice and I thought well they should be nice grandma should be nice I <laughs> hoping but they weren't nice and they were challenging to see what was my commitment so mm-hmm. I judged them wrongly in the beginning because that was my first impression of them it's like wow they're being really tough and mean and so I saw in myself, I thought, well, this is how I have to be. But then in time, I thought, but that isn't how I want to be treated. So I noticed that, and I started paying attention to who. I think that one of the greatest questions that is ever asked of me is, who do I look up to in the world? Who of a woman, and it can be at any walk of life, do you in your contemporary world look up to? And it took me a while. It took me about three days to think about who would this person be? And what came to me, which is totally out of maybe the context of how we're talking today, was it was Catherine Hepburn. And I'm not a big TV person or a movie goer or any of that, but as a Mm -hmm. child... Every time I watched something that she was in, or as a young adult, there was something about her that was so familiar. And I can say I modeled more of her in my wanting to be as a doctor, as a midwife, as a healer. And and I it was her manner. So I think it's very important to have... What I noticed in her is a kind of a nurturing, a curiosity, a softness, a a sense of that she was fragile but strong at the same time. And I didn't know that that was possible. I didn't know that that was a choice, you know, like that was okay. And, And so then noticing the people that taught me, both male and female, they were kind to me, and they were assisting, but they they didn't, like, baby me. They they would say, hey, cut that out when they needed to. Or, like, my grandfather was, like, every so often he would just swear, which would totally get my attention because we never swore in our household. So I think that looking at who in the world, you know, you could you could say, oh, it's, it's, um, it's like looking at um, Mother Teresa or... Um, you know, looking around at models of people that you want to be like. But for me, um, that started changing very quickly, and I I noticed more women that weren't um, big and pronounced, but they held this solid, you can lean back on them, you can trust them, they are with you, and they're not um, perfect. They've, they've had their own stories to tell. And you and through their sharing of their personal struggles to get to where they are, where we idolize them, they had to go through a lot to realize themselves through the assistance of their experiences and their teachers 
and how life taught them um, and their journey to being where they're at to share that. And that's what I wanted to do, too, was to tell my story. I watched an interview by like Sunny and Cher, Cher, because I knew I was also of her her tribal uh, affiliation. And I thought, wow, she's somebody famous and important, and oh my gosh, she has dyslexia like me. I never even knew what it was. But she described it in public television, and I heard it and watched it and went, this is what I've had. Oh my gosh, this is what was going on with me. And so finding people who wanted to share, people who are nurturing in that way, and I thought, this is how I want to model leadership. And the other thing is, the greatest teacher is Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't we pay attention to her and how she does things, that she has cycles and she changes with those cycles. And she has ways of nurturing. She has ways of saying, wake up, pay attention. Something's changing. You know, so for me, I have taken these models, really paying attention to nature as a good teacher, and seeing how is it that if I'm a replica of the Great Mother that I should be in this world for myself and for others. So that's what I would say about that. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing so much with us today. Um, I want to end by telling people about all the offerings that we have coming up. Um, on you can visit sweetmedicinenation.com and Sweet Medicine has a 20 count class, which is an the 20 count is an ancient Choctaw way of denoting um, events, and it sounds like it's a a number way of counting, but it's much more than that. And um, Sweet Medicine describes what it is and has a whole class around it so that you can um, uncover different meanings throughout your life through through the count. And so you can find that at sweetmedicination.com. And she's also um, going to be publishing a much more in-depth training um, in the next few months. So sign up for the newsletter list so that you can get that announcement. And then if you want to come visit us in Boulder or if you live in Boulder, Colorado, Sweet Medicine will be here in the end of September. That's also on her website. Is there anything else that you want to add? Well, I would just say that if you are in the Boulder area or wherever I come or if you want to just go on and see what I offer besides um, what has been mentioned, and thank you, Carrie, for doing that, is that the sole purpose readings, I can do those, which I love to do, uh, one-on-one. That's very special because it's so intimate. But I am also doing those long distance now, too, to really know who you are. And I look forward to adding four years of classes, video form, and trainings um, for those who are interested in seeing if this walk is their walk or not. So I'm excited to be able to offer a bunch of things while I'm in Boulder. Yeah, the sole purpose readings are very profound, and the way that Sweet Medicine does it is it's very unique, and there's nothing else like it. So I highly recommend it. 
Thank you, Carrie. Thanks again, Sweet Medicine, and we'll talk to you soon.